Well, good morning again. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn with me to Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10, where we find one of the most familiar passages in all of Jesus' ministry, the parable of the Good Samaritan. So Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37 will be our text this morning as we come to consider God's Word with one another. And I'll invite you to follow along with me as we listen to the reading of God's Word. This is what the Holy Spirit says to the church, beginning in verse 25 of Luke chapter 10. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put Jesus to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three, do you think, proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord given to us for our good. Let's pray together as we consider God's word. Father, we do thank you that you are a God who speaks. We thank you that you have spoken once and for all in the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray, Father, for ears of faith now and hearts that are ready to respond to the Word of God. We ask, Lord, that You would bless the reading and the preaching of Your Word, that You would keep me from error, and that You would grant Your people discernment, that we would all hold fast to what is true as we wait for the appearing of our great God and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Uh, when I was a school teacher, one of my least favorite activities was explaining the requirements for any given assignment. We've got a number of teachers in here. You might dread that moment too. The going over the rubric day was one of my least favorite parts of being a teacher. We had this one project in particular that always tested my patience. It wasn't that the project was bad per se or that the subject matter was, was unhelpful. It was that invariably, every year that I taught, at some point in explaining those requirements, some student would raise their hand and say, Mr. Breeding, what's the minimum I have to do to pass this assignment? And Now, the student wouldn't say it just like that, but th that's what he was asking. And so if, if the rubric said, cite your sources, invariably somebody asked, how many sources? How many citations? 
If the, if the guideline was for a six-page paper, someone said, does that mean six, like words all the way to the end of the sixth page or just like one word on page six? Does that count? Every time that I would get these questions and it was a bit frustrating. I dreaded that moment. What's the lowest bar that I have to clear in order to not get in trouble? Perhaps what made that moment so frustrating to me as a teacher is that it reminded me very much of myself. <laughs> I did the same thing in school. I did it at home too. My dad would say, clean your room, and I'd do just enough to keep from getting grounded. Perhaps you can relate to these things. In fact, I bet you can relate because what we're talking about here is rooted in human nature. It's rooted in human nature. It seems that part of our nature is this bent towards doing just enough to justify that our performance is good enough. Doing just the minimum so that we'll be able to say, yep, I've done my responsibilities. I'm good. I'm not going to be in trouble. Now, when it comes to a school assignment or cleaning your room, that might not sound like such a big deal to you. But what about when it comes to following the Lord? What about when the question is not a six-page paper, but a command from the Bible? Now the seriousness of that hard attitude becomes a little bit clearer, doesn't it? Do we aim for the minimum, hoping to justify ourselves that we're just good enough? Or do we display what God desires, which is a wholehearted obedience that's rooted in the grace of God? Friends, this question of the heart, this question of the heart is really what Luke chapter 10 is all about. The parable of the Good Samaritan, as we said earlier, is certainly well known. Even that phrase, the Good Samaritan, is part of our shared cultural vocabulary. What do you call the guy who stops on the side of the road to help the stranger change a flat tire? He's a good Samaritan. So we're really familiar with this text. And yet, when we slow down long enough to pay attention to this familiar passage, what we find is that this text is more than a call to be kind to people in need. This passage is more than a lesson in mercy. Now, to be sure, showing mercy is certainly one of the takeaways in this parable, as we're going to see this morning. But at the core, this, this passage is about matters of the heart. Specifically, the Good Samaritan, the parable of the Good Samaritan, urges us to face up to the reality that our hearts are often quite hard towards God. Our nature is to look for the minimum, do that, and then justify ourselves that we've been good enough. Our hearts are actually quite hard towards God. And this parable confronts that. And then this parable calls us to recognize that we need something more than mere performance. We need something more than performance. We need something that only God can provide. We need hearts that are made new. We need hearts that are transformed and, and then eager and able to live the kind of life that honors God. The kind of life that doesn't settle for the minimum. The kind of life that doesn't look for self-justification. But the kind of life that displays the very heart of God. A merciful heart to a world in need. That's really the takeaway of this passage. 
That's the application of the Good Samaritan. It is, at the end of the day, a matter of the heart. As you look at the text, friends, you should note that the passage has a very clear plot line. It's not hard to follow. There are two main figures, Jesus and this Jewish lawyer. The lawyer is a scribe, which means he's an expert in the law of Moses. And in the plot of the passage, this lawyer does what lawyers do. He tries to prosecute Jesus in a very slippery way. He's actually trying to defend himself. But he comes, at least with the pretense of wanting to prosecute Jesus, he comes to question the Lord. But that's where the plot turns. The lawyer starts with a question, but Jesus very quickly responds with a question of his own. It becomes a a cross-examination, you might say. And it turns the whole passage upside down. And that's where our focus ought to be. As Jesus questions this lawyer, we see a number of points that speak to that matter of the heart that we were talking about just a moment ago. There's three points, in fact, that ought to help us examine our hearts and then respond to Jesus as we ought. So let's consider these matters of the heart. First of all, in the opening scene, verses 25 to 28, we see how the Word of God exposes hard hearts. The Word of God exposes hard hearts. The lawyer, verse 25, stands up to ask Jesus a question. Actually, Luke tells us the lawyer intends to put Jesus to the test. That gives us some insight into the lawyer's heart. This is not a friendly question. This is an ambush. It's a trap. He has insincere motives. He wants to discredit Jesus. But despite that insincere motive, the lawyer's question is a good one. Notice what he asks. Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, eternal life there is a shorthand summary for all of the blessings that God promised to those who belonged to His kingdom. The unrighteous and the wicked would inherit destruction, while the righteous and those who were right in God's sight, they would inherit eternal life. In that sense, the lawyer asks the question of questions. How can I be sure that on the last day, I will find life with God rather than destruction in the grave? How can I be sure? How can I enter that life, Jesus? It's a good question. It's the right question even. Though the lawyer's motives are not sincere. Of course, Jesus, as He always does, proves to be too wise to play games with fools. Notice how Jesus flips the responsibility back on the lawyer. Jesus responds with a question. Verse 26, Jesus said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? Now, you've got to see the wisdom of Christ here, friends. Perhaps this lawyer hoped to trap Jesus and somehow prove that that Jesus was some kind of zealot who was opposed to the Mosaic law. But with this answer, Jesus evades that trap. I mean, think about it. Where does Jesus direct the lawyer's attention? To the Word of God. To to the law of, of Moses. You see, this is the common place of authority between Jesus and the lawyer. This is their sacred text. In other words, Jesus is saying, hey, don't take my word for it, friend. Let's see what the Bible has to say. 
Let's, let's hear what the Word of God has to say. If you want to know about salvation and eternal life and the kingdom of God, then let's not debate our points of view. Let's just look to the Scriptures. It's a powerful reminder, even here just in passing, it's a powerful reminder that when it comes to the things of God, Jesus Himself reminds us that there's only one source for insight and wisdom, and it's not us. It's God's Word. It's the Scriptures. What does the text say? Jesus asks the man. And the lawyer, for his part, gives the right answer. Notice verse 27. He answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. So the lawyer goes to what is arguably the heart of the Old Testament. Deuteronomy chapter 6. You can make the case that Deuteronomy chapter 6 is the most important chapter in the Old Testament. And in Deuteronomy 6, we hear Israel's central confession of faith. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. There's only one God. That was the central confession of Israel's life. It was the truth that made them the people of God. And then flowing out of that central confession was this one great commandment. Love the Lord your God with every aspect of your being, heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love Him. And then from that, the Old Testament went on to say in places like Leviticus 19 that those who love God also ought to love their neighbors as themselves. Again, this was central to Israel's life. A right relationship with God leads to a right relationship with other people. So if you love God, love your neighbor. All of that to say here in Luke chapter 10, the lawyer gets it right. The lawyer knows the Scriptures and he answers correctly. And therefore, Jesus simply affirms what the lawyer has said. Verse 28, Jesus said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. In other words, Jesus tells the lawyer, what are we discussing? You know the Bible. You know the Word of God. Submit to it. Follow the Scriptures with a humble heart that trusts what God has said and you will enter eternal life. Follow God's Word. You see, Jesus has nothing more to add to the conversation. And that's really key here, friends. Notice what Jesus has done in this exchange. Notice what has happened. He has exposed the fact that the lawyer already knew the answer. He already knew the truth. So the tables have turned, haven't they? What has become clear is that this lawyer's problem is his heart is hard. He already knew what the law required. He just didn't want to do it. He knew what the commandment was, but he didn't want to follow it. He could quote it chapter and verse, but he wouldn't obey it. It's really a striking moment. Of all the people in Israel, you would expect a lawyer, a scribe, to be able to understand and apply the Old Testament law. And yet, for all of his understanding, the lawyer doesn't understand. He sees, but he doesn't see. And through the Scriptures, Jesus has brought this hardness of heart out into the light. The lawyer came wanting to play games, and Jesus turned it around and exposed him through the Word of God. Listen to me, friends. This is what God's Word always does. It opens us up under the penetrating, searching light of God's truth. As Martin Luther once said, when we read the Bible, it reads us. It reveals our hearts. 
And oftentimes, what the Scriptures reveal is that our hearts are hard. This is our natural condition, friends. This is the state of every person who comes into this world. We don't come into the world open to God and ready, and ready to respond to His Word. We don't come into this world just morally neutral and then later on we get corrupted by our environment. No, that's not true. Our natural condition is we come into this world the minute we draw breath, opposed to God and hating His Word. We come with insincere motives. And even when we know the right answers, we don't want to follow them. We'd rather play games with the Bible. We'd rather fool around with truth as though it's something we can manipulate to serve our purposes. And one of the things that we ought to be struck by in this passage is that the Lord Jesus is not going to be trifled with. He's not going to play games with hard-hearted folks. The lawyer wants to play games and Jesus brings the Word of God and through that Word, He powerfully exposes this man. And at the same time, friends, this, this exchange that exposes the lawyer, this same exchange also shows us why we cannot live without God's Word. We can't live without it. There's only one source of truth, friends. There's only one light that is able to expose us and bring us to see how desperately we need more than right answers. And that's the Scriptures. That's why we put such an emphasis on being a Word-driven church. Because only the Scriptures are powerful enough to overcome our deeply rooted hardness of heart. Friends, this is why our pastors every week are calling you to be Word-driven Christians. Because only the Scriptures are able to keep you in the faith. Only the Scriptures are able to keep you from wandering and from drifting away. Only the Scriptures are enough to, to keep us from not just knowing the truth, but also then doing the truth by faith. You see? Only the Word of God is powerful enough to do this. It exposes the nature of our hearts, and that's why we cannot live without the Scriptures. Now, I said just a moment ago that the lawyer knows the right answer. He just doesn't want to do it. He knows the right doctrine. He just doesn't want to follow it. That might sound kind of harsh, but I think the second point of the passage confirms that view. Beginning in verse 29, we witness how the Son of God highlights the need for a new heart. The Son of God highlights our need for new hearts. Again, the lawyer asks Jesus a question, and as before, the question tells us quite a bit about the lawyer's heart. Notice verse 29. But the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Friends, the key phrase there, you can see it, is desiring to justify himself. That's the lawyer's aim. He wants to prove himself right. He wants to prove that he is doing enough to inherit eternal life. And so out of this desire for self-justification, the lawyer asks, Who exactly is my neighbor. Now think about that question for a minute. What is the lawyer hoping to accomplish by asking that question? Well, he's aiming to minimize his obligation, isn't he? 
if the lawyer can define the category of neighbor narrowly enough, then he can justify himself before the law's commands. You see, he's trying to exclude certain people from the category of neighbor. It's, it's really a clever scheme. It's really a clever scheme. If he can lower the standard enough, then he won't fall short of it, is what he thinks. If he can get the bar down where he can clear it, then he'll be okay. And so he says to Jesus, yeah, yes, yes, I know the commands, Jesus, but, but who exactly is my neighbor? How exactly should I apply this? It's really a clever scheme. Once more, though, the wisdom of Christ is on display as Jesus responds with this very familiar and very powerful parable. The details are clear. So clear, in fact, that by the time we get to the final question in verse 36, the answer is inescapable. So notice the details of of the parable. Verse 30, a man is going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. This is a steep mountain road that goes through a number of ravines. And it's the perfect place for thieves to hide. And that's what happens in the parable. This man is attacked, he's robbed, he's beaten, and he's left for dead. If anyone is in need of a neighbor, it's this guy. If he doesn't get help, he's going to die. Verse 31, by chance, a priest passes by. This is someone who knows the law. Someone who serves God's people under the law. So you would expect that a pious priest would help this man in need. Wrong. He doesn't. He passes by on the other side of the road. Perhaps he was afraid that the man was already dead and if he gets too close, he's going to be ceremonially unclean if he touches a dead body. Whatever the reason, the priest wants nothing to do with this man. So he passes to the other side of the road. He keeps walking. Then verse 32, a Levite passes by. This man is a descendant of Levi, but he's not a descendant of Aaron. So he's not a priest, but he's in the priestly tribe. Which means, again, he knows the law. He would have helped with other things at the temple, like preparing the sacrifices, but not offering them. So again, this man knows the law. Surely, surely a Levite will be a neighbor. Wrong. Again, Jesus says, the Levite passes by on the other side of the road. Finally, Jesus brings the twist. Verse 33, a dreaded Samaritan passes by. Jews and Samaritans despised each other. There were no relations between the two. Jews considered Samaritans to be half-breeds. They hated Samaritans. Samaritans didn't like Jews either. And so a dreaded Samaritan passed by. This is the last person on earth you would expect to be a neighbor to a Jewish person in need. In fact, these two groups of people disliked one another so much that the Samaritan could have easily justified just passing by on the other side of the road. The Samaritan could have said in his mind, that guy doesn't even want my help. Even if he were conscious and could ask for help, he wouldn't even want my help because I'm a Samaritan. He wouldn't want me to be his neighbor so I can exclude him from the category. That's how easy the Samaritan could have justified himself. And yet that's the the power of the parable, isn't it? The Samaritan doesn't justify himself. Verse 33, he has compassion on the man. And then notice the details that Jesus includes. Verses 34 and 35. The description of the Samaritan's compassion is almost as long as the rest of the parable put together. It's really profound. The Samaritan cleans the man's wounds. 
He transports him to a safe place. He stays with him overnight. And then he covers the cost of the man's ongoing care. In fact, the Samaritan promises to pay whatever else is needed. It's it's detailed. It's in-depth. It's thorough. You see, instead of asking, who is my neighbor? The Samaritan asked a better question. He asked, how can I be a neighbor regardless of the situation? And we're going to come back to compassion in the final point in just a minute. But I want to finish up with the lawyer here. Notice how Jesus uses the parable to highlight what the lawyer truly needs. Verse 36, Jesus asks a question with a clear answer. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? The answer is inescapable, isn't it? The lawyer can't hide. Verse 37, he says, the one who showed him mercy. Friends, notice the lawyer can't even say the word Samaritan. He he just refers to the action. The one who showed mercy. Which is the very thing that the lawyer has been aiming to avoid. So notice what the parable has done. If this, is a, if this is a prosecution, the lawyer just got convicted by the, by the parable. He's just proven himself guilty when he says the one who showed mercy, which is the very thing the lawyer did not want to do. And so with that point being made, notice Jesus' final instructions. Verse 37, And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. Go and do likewise. Friends, that final word from Jesus is a profound challenge to the lawyer. And and let's be clear. I'm going to be very clear on this. Jesus is not telling the lawyer, go and try harder and perhaps you'll inherit eternal life. That's not what He is telling this man. The lawyer has just convicted himself of being unable to show the kind of mercy that the Samaritan just displayed in the parable. The the, the parable has shown the lawyer that his attempt at self-justification is a fool's errand. It's not going to lead anywhere. Good. And that's precisely Jesus' point. With those last words, Jesus is telling the lawyer, you don't need clever legal games to get around the obligations of the law. You need profound heart transformation. He can't go and do likewise. He doesn't want to do it. And Jesus is saying, that's precisely the point. You need something that the law cannot provide. You you need something that the law cannot do. You know the commandment, but the commandment can't give you the ability to keep what it commands. You need something more than clever legal schemes, friend. You need heart transformation. You see the takeaway? The lawyer knows the commands. He knows the law. That's not his problem. The lawyer's problem is he doesn't want to keep it. He doesn't want to do what God commands him to do. And that means that the lawyer right now needs to stop attempting to justify himself and he has to admit to Jesus, I can't do this on my own. I know the command, but I can't meet it. You see, that's where every attempt, every attempt at self-justification ends in one of two places. Every attempt at self-justification only ends in one of two places. 
On the one hand, it ends in despair because none of us can go and do likewise. Or it ends in humility where we admit before God that we are utter failures under His law and that we cannot go and do likewise. And we need what only God can provide, which is this profound transformation of the heart. You may remember from last week when Jesus said, all things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. You may remember that from last week. That truth, that reality, is what the lawyer needs at this point. If he's looking to find eternal life, he's not going to get it through self-justification. If he's looking to find eternal life, he won't find it through lowering the standard so that he can then do just enough to get in. Eternal life is found with God alone. And God alone is found only through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So Jesus saying, if you want to know God, you've got to come to Me. Last week when Jesus said, all things have been given Me to the Father and I reveal the Father to those whom I choose. That truth, friends, is where the lawyer needs to get in verse 37. He needs the Son to reveal to Him the Father. He needs the Son to open His eyes to see that He cannot get Himself into the Kingdom of God. Listen, won't you trust Jesus Christ, friends? Won't you trust Him this morning? Perhaps you're not a Christian today. You are not repenting of your sins and you're not trusting in Jesus Christ alone to save you. Perhaps you're not a Christian. Or, or perhaps you came to church today thinking that you were a Christian, but in the course of the sermon, you've recognized that you're, you've just been living like the lawyer, trying to justify yourself. That what you were describing as Christianity was really just a lowering of the bar so that you could clear it and then make yourself good enough for God to accept you. Perhaps you're here today and you're not a Christian. And if so, I pray that God would open your eyes right now that there's only one way to inherit eternal life. And that's through faith in Jesus Christ, God's Son. Listen to me. The Gospel is not God's promise to make up that gap between your performance and His standard. That's not the Gospel. Right? The Gospel is the good news that God takes the initiative to come to us down here in the misery of sin and despair. And God takes the initiative through the giving of His Son who took on human flesh, obeyed the law, and laid down His life on the cross to make atonement for sinners like us. Friends, that's the Gospel. And through faith in Jesus Christ, sinners like us can be saved. The Gospel is not God's promise to make up the gap between what you can do and what He demands. The Gospel is God's declaration that He's done all the work necessary. And you must trust Him to live. The Lord Jesus left the glory of His Father's presence. He came down to dwell among us broken people. And in dwelling among us, Jesus was rejected, despised, beaten, and crucified on a cross with compassion Jesus laid down His life so that those who would not and could not keep God's law would be saved. That's the Gospel. And now, by grace, Jesus calls people to trust Him. He calls people to bank their lives 
upon Him. Friend, if you are, if you are not a Christian today, that is the only way to eternal life. That's the only way for hard-hearted people like us to be reconciled to God and forgiven of our sins. We can't make the bar low enough. And even if it were on the ground floor, we still couldn't get over it. There's only one way to receive eternal life. And it's not through lowering the standard. It's through trusting in the compassionate, gracious work of Jesus Christ who bore the cross in the place of sinners. So I don't know the state of your soul this morning, but if you came to church today thinking that you were right with God because you were keeping some standard, if you came in today justifying yourself, then I pray that you hear the good news, friend. There's only one person who merits eternal life. And it's not you or me. It's the Lord Jesus. And the Bible is calling you right now to trust only in Him. For those who are Christians today, if you are repenting of your sins and trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, there there is another application from this familiar parable. There is another call to us. The good news is that Christ, by His Spirit, has given His people new hearts. (laughs) Hearts that both delight and desire to obey God. That's really the deepest blessing of the new covenant. It's the most profound reality of being gospel people. God, right now, is changing us to look more like Him. God is changing us so that our hearts will want to walk in the way of His heart. It's incredible. Our hearts are being renewed after the image of Christ. Praise God. And in light of that gospel reality, listen to me, in light of that gospel reality, there's one more point from the Good Samaritan that we ought to note. It's how the Spirit of God does call us to cultivate compassionate hearts. The Spirit of God does call us to cultivate compassionate hearts. Brothers and sisters, this this final takeaway comes just from that verb, compassion, in verse 33. You see it there in your Bibles. The Samaritan saw the man in need and he had compassion. Now, here's the interesting piece to the story. That verb, to have compassion, is used only two other times in Luke's Gospel. Luke chapter 7, where Jesus meets the widow whose only son has just died. Do you remember that? She's coming out of the city with the funeral procession and Jesus sees her. Luke 7.13 When the Lord saw her, He had compassion on her. And then He raises the woman's son to new life. So the first instance in Luke comes from the Lord Jesus Himself. The second instance comes later in Luke 15 and the parable of the prodigal son. You know that parable too, don't you? When the prodigal son finally decides to come home, Jesus says, while the son was still a long way off, the father saw him and had compassion on him. And he runs to meet him. Now in that parable, the father represents God the father, right? And that means Jesus is really telling us about the heart of God the father. When wayward sinners come to God, how does the father respond? With compassion. And he doesn't care if you've been in a far off country for a long, long time. He responds with compassion. So those are the only two other instances in Luke's gospel of this verb to have compassion. Luke chapter 7, Jesus. Luke 15, the father in the parable of the prodigal son who represents God the father. Those are the only two other instances. What is that telling us? 
Well, friends, it's telling us that compassion, this kind of compassion, is a uniquely divine characteristic. (laughs) It's uniquely exemplary of the heart of God. Compassion, this sense of loving sympathy that steps into situations of need, that kind of compassion is uniquely illustrative of God's own heart. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who love Him. Psalm 103. What's God's heart like? It's compassionate. And so then here's the connection with us as Christians. God, by His grace, has given us new hearts in Christ Jesus. And by His grace, He continues to sanctify us and transform us. And as He does that, one of the virtues that we ought to purposefully cultivate is compassion. We ought to work hard at being compassionate. That's the call for Christians from the parable of the Good Samaritan. Here's the question. Does our attitude match God's heart? Does our attitude match God's heart? Do we look for ways to show compassion whenever and wherever the situation arises? Or, are we like the lawyer in this text? Do we prefer to ask the question, well, who is my neighbor? Am I really accountable to that person? I don't even know them. Do you see the difference? The lawyer's attitude looks for the minimum that he has to do. But God's heart is to say, show me the need and I'll do whatever I can to step in. That's the difference, friends. It's the difference between asking, who is my neighbor? And how can I be a neighbor in whatever situation the Lord puts me? Not who is my neighbor, but how can I be one? Listen, I'm not going to stand up here today and give you a list of things that you ought to do in order to be compassionate. I'm I'm not going to turn this text into a law and then demand that we all meet it. But I am going to do two things. I am going to urge each of us to do two things. One, friends, is just some self-examination. Some self-examination. I want you to ask yourself at some point today, this next week, Prayerfully, ask yourself this question. Whose attitude do I, do I uh, depict most often? God's or the lawyer's? Whose attitude am I displaying most often? God's or the lawyer's? Do I look for the minimum and then say that I'm okay? Or am I like God the Father who runs when wayward people return? Whose attitude do I have most often? That's the first thing. The second thing that I want us to do is Pray. And we take prayer far too lightly, by the way. So I'm asking you to pray. Pray for God to give you a desire to show more compassion. It would be really foolish for me to stand up here at the end of this sermon where I just told you that we can't do what our hearts don't want to do. We don't have the ability to make ourselves into a different kind of people. So it would be really foolish for me to stand up here and tell you, hey, try harder, be more compassionate. So I'm asking you to pray. Pray that God would expose where our hearts are still hard to His attitude. Pray that God would give us a desire to be more compassionate. Pray that God would allow us to see the world with His eyes and from His perspective. And then pray for the grace to respond with God's heart, which is surely a heart of compassion. 
Surely. Examine yourself. Whose attitude do I have most often? And then pray. We all have hard hearts, friends. That's why we need God's Word. And our hearts are actually so hard that we need God to do what we can't and won't do for ourselves. We need God to give us new hearts by His grace. And brothers and sisters, praise God, the Father has done that by His Spirit through the Gospel of His Son. We have been made new. It's the good news. We've been made new by God's grace. And now, flowing from that work of grace, flowing from God's initiative towards us, let's strive to cultivate the kind of compassion that helps broken, needy people see that there is a God who saves. And in fact, He's a God who delights to save even the most wayward. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your kindness to us. Thank You that You are a God who is compassionate, who is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Father, our hearts are hard. We pray for grace to repent. We pray for grace to be changed, Father, and to live with the kind of attitude that You display, Father, the kind of attitude that is quick to show mercy. Help us, God, we ask now, by Jesus' name. Amen.